Welcome you to join us to our first podcast. So we are going to come to you weekly to motivate, educate, and inspire on the issues that matter to everyday people. And we're going to be bringing you guests and having conversations that really, really impact the daily lives of people in Philadelphia and nationally. And first, I'd like to pay the bills by thanking our sponsor. First, I'd like to thank PTTI, Philadelphia Technician Training Institute, where they train young people in electronics, in nursing, in cement work and automotive. And I'd also like to thank Urban Navigation, where they actually engage young people with power sports to not participate in gun violence. And I'd also like to thank my video team from Wright Visual Studios and also my production team from Taylor B Media. Um, And today we are bringing to you District Attorney Larry Krasner, who is a progressive DA, whatever that means, right? So people use this word progressive all the time. And I've never thought of you as a progressive. Some people also call you a reformist, right? And I like that better. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about how you got to the DA's office and some of the stuff that you've been doing since you've been in the DA's office. So I actually think you're right. I think reform DA makes more sense. People get progressive sometimes makes you think about other political things. And what, what we do is really not political. It's about the criminal justice system, which needs change. It needs reform. So I think you're probably right that saying, uh, I'm a reform prosecutor Mm -hmm. is better. So how'd I get here? Well, <clears throat> it's a long, boring life, but, you it's, know. It's really not a boring life, Larry. People don't really know how exciting your life is. All right. Well, okay. <laughs> Let's go back to a, 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 a little room in 1961 in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I was born in St. Louis, went to public schools there. My parents had a very interesting background. They came through the Depression. They came through World War II. My father was the son of Russian Jewish immigrants, actually from the Ukraine area. Wow. And my uh, mother's people were uh, devout Christians, um, farmers. Mm-hmm. So she was actually a tent evangelist, and he was from a Jewish family. And we celebrated every, uh, well, not every, but a lot of holidays mm-hmm. in my home. And that kind of breadth of experience was really pretty useful to me because uh, you understood a little bit what it was like to be in a group or out of a group and treated a certain way when you were out of that group. Mm -hmm. And I think it was very helpful to us. We went from St. Louis and then came out to Philly when my dad got a new job. He eventually became physically disabled, went to public schools out here. But all those years, there was one thing I really hated, and that was bullies. I don't like bullies. I know that's right. I don't like bullies. I don't like them when they use their power in the wrong way on people. And I think that had a lot to do with my uh, eventually ending up in law school and then deciding, I w- deciding that I wanted to do work that I thought mattered for people who needed somebody to back them up. Mm-hmm. 
that uh, could have been a lot of things. You know, I interviewed with prosecutors' offices. I interviewed with public defenders' offices. My wife I met in law school, she became a lawyer for people who were discriminated against in their employment. That's what she did. So she was a civil rights lawyer for employees. And I was, in my mind, a civil rights lawyer for people in the criminal justice system. And then also I did a lot of work around police abuse because unfortunately, believe it or not, Movita, in Philadelphia, some of the time, power doesn't do the right thing. Right. So I had 30 years of that before I became the DA. So that was a pretty big shift going from being a criminal defense attorney and a civil rights attorney for people who were abused by police in a way, but in another way, it was really all the same thing because mm -hmm. my focus the whole time had been on justice and I really felt like you could do justice on both sides of the coin. In fact, I thought it was all the same coin, which is that we should try to use power in the right way. We should not try to use power in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And we should always be mindful of broke people and other marginalized people. And I think people don't even realize, like, I know when I met you, I hadn't even known, you, you were in the process of running to become the DA, but I hadn't even known that you had actually um, defended protesters, right? So I used to be vice chair for Heating Guys Caught in Gun Violence, mm -hmm. and there was a DA race going on, and a good friend of mine, Brian Miller, who's the executive director, said, Movita, you got to meet this guy right? And I met you and then I found out the story. And the story was that, you know, Colosimo's gun shop was doing a bunch of illegal straw purchases and, and heating God's call and a bunch of clergy and everyday people were sitting in at Colosimo's and, and were arrested for having a protest. And you literally represented them pro bono. <clears throat> yep. That was one of my, excuse me, favorite cases of all time. Pardon me. It was just so much fun. You had, uh, I think it was actually 12 defendants, mm -hmm. which has a certain reference in the Bible, but it was 12 people, right. all of them clergy, in one way or another, who went into Colosimo's gun shop, which was a dirty gun shop in Philly, now shut down by the feds, mm -hmm. at 10th and Spring Garden Street. Um, and there was just a whole lot of dirty gun transactions going on, guns going out the door and guns from Colosimo's ending up at crime scenes, right. e either on the person who was killed or left at the scene after someone had shot somebody else. So it was a mess. It was, it was on the federal list of, I think the 10 worst gun shops in the United States. Wow. So all these clergies basically said, look, we got, we've had enough. We're going to go to this gun shop and ask the owner of the gun shop to sign on to this pretty reasonable list of things that they're going to do to make sure guns don't fall into the wrong hands. This was a list that came out of New York, and a lot of people in New York had signed it. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to sign it. Right. We got nothing to worry about here. We're just giving guns out like crazy. And so the, these different clergy sat down. They protest. They sat in. They were singing hymns. They were doing their thing. <laughs> out there and needless to say what did that district attorney do that was before i was district attorney thank right. you very much well do we embrace all these clergy who are trying to end gun violence do we take a close look at colosimos and why so many guns are going into the hands of criminals no we arrest the clergy and prosecute them and then we prosecute them so i you know i ended up representing them it was something i love to do and they were just wonderful Man, I'll tell you something. You want to call a witness? Call a member of the clergy. <laughs> put, put them on a stand. They will, they will tear it down. 
and they absolutely tore it down. They were all found not guilty. There's actually a really funny story about that. And I won't name the judge, but <laughs> the story goes that after all these clergy had told these compelling stories on the stand with all of that ability to communicate, like you have, after they told all those, those compelling stories on the stand, a lawyer who knew the judge saw her before she gave her verdict. And he said to her, what are you going to do? And she said, I'm not going to hell. And then she walked out and found them all not guilty. I know that's right. So you do all this amazing work. You defend innocent people because we know Philadelphia and this nation has a history of incarcerating black folk. Right. So you've done a lot of amazing work and then you wind up in the DA's office. So can you just give us a brief outline of your work in the DA's office and some of the amazing things. There was actually, somebody put up a tweet this morning about, oh, I think it was Oren Gurr, your criminologist, put up a tweet this morning about something you did in 2018 and something you did in 2019 and something you did in 20 and so forth and so on. So can you just tell us some of the major things that sticks out for you that you're proud of that has been done in the district attorney's office since you've been there? So I haven't seen that tweet, and he didn't run it by me, so i got to fire him now. <laughs> not really, Oren. But, uh, it may not have been Oren. I think it was Phila DAO. Oh, i got to fire somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> but, so what have we done? Uh, what we have done is really a focus on the most serious crime. Focus on homicides. Focus mm -hmm. on first-degree felony rapes. Uh, you know, focus on gunpoint robberies. Focus on carjacking. Focus on shootings. We have really focused on that. And uh, that means you got to shift some resources away from other things. So we are really not as interested in prosecuting people for just possessing drugs. Mm -hmm. I consider that to be a public health problem, a medical problem, where we need to help and support people, but we don't need to tear them down with a bunch of convictions if they're willing to get treatment. Uh, you know, in the same way, I believe that the lives of a lot of sex workers are the lives of victims that what they go through has been terrible trauma in their life. Sometimes it's been addiction and other things. We're not helping them get out of life by giving them a bunch of convictions. Right. So we need to have other things available. And there are a lot of countries that I believe manage these issues much better than we do. They manage addiction better than we do. They mm -hmm. prevent fatal overdoses better than we do. They support sex workers and give them alternatives better than we do. Um, they mental health. Mental health. They support juveniles much better than we do. Absolutely. I mean, we really have made mental health a crime, which mm -hmm. it isn't. And that's why they're in our jails. Instead of being in facilities or instead of having medication and being in the community, because we've taken away 85% of our mental health system to build jails. Yep. That's really the history in the last 40 years. It's been shift resources to jails and policing, take them out of schools, take them out of mental health, take them out of community activity that's supportive of young people and gives them something to do that is a whole lot better than drug dealing and gun violence. And this is reform, right? That actually is what reform is. It's making sure that those who are most marginalized, who are most at risk, are getting the services that they need as opposed to locking them up. We know there's money. You know, I, I say it all the time, like gun violence is big business, right? There's a lot of money being made off of people dying by guns. And there's a lot of money being made off of people behind mental illness, sex workers, drug addiction. And I want to point out, you've done something really amazing um, with your new juvenile diversion program. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Uh, well, we've done a few things, but one of the most interesting things we have done is that we have brought a little bit of restorative justice to mm -hmm. Philly. Restorative justice is a concept that is known around the country, but not really known here. There are some cases, including some cases that are a little bit serious, where if you get the kid who did it in the room with the victim and you talk through what's going on there, you just get better results. The victims mm -hmm. feel much better served and the kids are much less likely to get back into criminal activity again. Um, it's kind of a beautiful thing when it works and it works better than simply finding kids guilty of a criminal act and then sending them off to some kind of school. It is not for every case and it takes a lot of time and a lot of resources. But there is something about a kid who's done something wrong facing the person they've harmed, talking through what they did, coming to understand the harm, and then coming to an agreement about positive things that young person is going to do in the future, keeping that agreement. So there's just something about that connection, that relationship that seems to be a lot more effective than this impersonal, anonymous, we're going to lock you up, kid. Next stop for you is adult jail. Absolutely. And you know, YASP is doing some work with you guys, and I actually worked with them in a circle with, a young, with two of their young people, and it was absolutely amazing. In fact, I helped through the Charles Foundation. You know, I created the Charles Foundation when my son was murdered. In fact, this month it'll make 12 years um, when Charles was murdered. And through the Charles Foundation, we made ourselves available to be able to do, you know, some community service with the kids. And once we got this young man, we couldn't get rid of him. Like we got him, he did his community service, we did the restorative circle, it, it, and he's still with us now. And this was early last year. So people don't even realize how positive this is for the community and that it works and that we need more of this, Absolutely. right? That, that people in the community need to be advocating for you to get the resources to be able to do more of this. And the one thing I wanted to move into, um, Larry, is, you know, with homicide and sentencing, you know, a lot of times people want to attack you for number one, first of all, for the police not doing their jobs, right? Every Everybody wants to blame everything on the district attorney's office. And Full disclosure, I used to work for the district attorney's office, so I know Larry and I have a relationship with them, right? And a lot of people don't know you. They just see what the media says and they just, you know, hear what other people say and they hear what disgruntled victims say. And every victim has a right to feel the way that they need mm -hmm. to feel or go through the process that they need to go to. But I think a lot of that comes from them not knowing national homicide or gun violence sentencing guidelines, right? Because even here in Philadelphia, people have been conditioned to believe that if they lose somebody, that it's an automatic life in prison without the possibility of parole. Mm -hmm. Well, the truth is Pennsylvania has a, uh, one of the largest numbers of lifers mm -hmm. in the United States. Pennsylvania is kind of famous for how long a lot of the sentences it are, and it has also been famous for how many death penalties came down. I mean, for example, Philadelphia had more juveniles who were sentenced to life without parole than any other city in the country. And in fact, because other countries don't do it, Philadelphia was the epicenter in the world right. of sending people who had some involvement in a homicide before they were 18 to jail for life without parole. Yeah. These are kids at 16, 15, 17. Even if they were in the car. That's right. Even if they were in the car. These are their kids uh, and were deciding before they even get to their 18th birthday in most situations that they're going to die in jail. Yeah. Um, 
That's how Philly has been. That's how Pennsylvania has been for a very long time. And that is in a country that is the most locked up country in the world. Mm -hmm. So what we're really talking about here is what we think is normal absolutely is not normal. There are other countries I can point to right now where they have one-ninth the level of incarceration and they have one-ninth the level of homicide. Yep. Like The idea that you lock everybody up and nobody commits crimes is false. Some of the places with the largest numbers of people in jail are the most violent places. In fact, if you actually look, if you look at the political side of this, and I'm not all about the politics, but this to me is an important fact. If you look at the Trump states, the states that voted for Donald Trump in the last election, and you compare them to the Biden states, states Mm -hmm. that voted for Biden in the last election, the murder rate is 40% higher in the Trump states. Really? 40% higher. So we're now comparing basically the entire United States, pretty big sample to look at, Pretty reliable results coming out of this. And the states that are Trump states tend to be the ones where they're all about more and more guns. Right. They're all about... Protecting their Second Amendment rights. That's right. And they're all about more and more punishment. Mm-hmm. That's what they're all about. And guess what? It don't work. Right. It don't work. The numbers are there and the numbers don't lie. We have to look at this situation. We have to realize that you know this country is extremely violent. It's extremely incarcerated. We have more guns than people out there. Yeah. And that's crazy. We have to do something to change. I am here, just as so many other people are here to say, the community is talking, the neighborhoods are talking, the people know what they want. And what they want is more safety than this. And we have to do something. And, and sadly, this doesn't happen. And I just had this conversation with somebody, right? This doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Like, it's like, we're living in an active war zone in Philadelphia, and everybody's traumatized. It is, and it's, it's Philadelphia, but it's a whole country. I mean, yeah. it's, it's really... It's obviously, the pandemic caused a particularly terrible moment in a right. lot of different ways. But it's not like it's new that this is the most violent industrial nation that is not actually at war with another nation. We've been that for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's new that the price of drugs got even lower and the potency of drugs got even higher on the streets of the United States. There's nothing new about the fact that we have you know, two suicides, two or three suicides by gun for every killing by gun. Right. I mean, the amount of harm that is being done in the United States It's just unthinkable in a lot of other countries. And that must mean that we got to look at root causes and we got to try to stop it. You know, I think we have to think more and more about how do we prevent the next victimization? How do we stop the blood from hitting the ground in the first place? You can punish all you want after the blood is on the ground. It's not going to bring back the victim. Absolutely. That's not how this works. Absolutely. So So I want to switch gears um, and talk about the impeachment. Mm -hmm. Um, so last year, some representatives got together and Mm -hmm. decided that they wanted to impeach the Philadelphia district attorney because he's responsible for everything that's wrong in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that process? I can. MAGA people are crazy. (laughs) That's, that's my little summary of it. Okay. The MAGA people, they're crazy. Um, so I'm not trying to make light of it because it's been kind of irritating. I'm sure it has. But, you know, in the history of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, which is hundreds of years, uh, there have been some, not many, elected officials impeached. And impeachment means you're charged with something. Mm -hmm. You're charged with something that could get you removed from office. There has never been anybody but me who got charged with having ideas and policies. Right. Everybody else got charged with sedition, I mean, actually trying to overthrow the United States, or illegal drug activity, 
They got convicted of crimes in almost every situation or they did something deeply corrupt to put money in their pocket. I just had some ideas. I just had some policies. And it turns out Philadelphians like them a lot, which is why we got elected in a landslide twice. A second time. But Beaver County, or at least the MAGA elected from Beaver County, where is that anyway? Doesn't feel the same way. (laughs) And Carbon County which is also not very close to Philadelphia, might not feel that way. You know, the people who are accusing me of this stuff and claiming that somehow I had invented crime in Philadelphia, they had bigger spikes in homicides than we had. And when I say bigger, I mean one of these counties had an 800% increase in homicides when we had a 59% increase. And 59% is terrible. Make no mistake. Wow. But you all had 800, okay? Every single one of these people who was bringing impeachment came from a location or represented a location where the spike in, in homicides was higher than in Philadelphia. But their whole point was, uh-uh, we're not going to talk about Beaver County. Right. We're not going to talk about these other counties. We just want to talk about the biggest Democratic county where certain kind of people live. Right. That's what they want to do. This is a very old strategy. It's been around since Richard Nixon. Blame the big cities, mm-hmm. blame the big diverse cities, blame the people who live in the big cities. They made a deliberate decision. They wouldn't even look at what was going on in every other county in Pennsylvania. They were just going to blame Philly. When the truth is, the terrible stuff we're going through, and it is terrible, it's kind of in line with, with what's right. going on in other cities. This is not the city in Pennsylvania with the worst increase in homicides. There's two other big cities that have worse ones. This is not the worst county in Pennsylvania, but it was a political tactic. It was designed to try to win midterm elections. It didn't win midterm elections. And, uh, you know, we're seeing this here. We're seeing it in other areas all around the country where they're trying to knock out reform prosecutors because they cannot beat them in elections. Mm -hmm. And that's the bottom line. These people can't win elections. So what they try to do is knock you out of office in between elections. In my case, in the form of impeachment. Now, the good news is that even though the House, the Pennsylvania House, did come up with these charges, this impeachment, mm-hmm. the Commonwealth Court, which is an appeals court in Pennsylvania, just said on Friday that we're right, that you cannot impeach someone for having ideas and policies, that you can only, That's great. You can only impeach them for deep corruption and for crimes. Duh. Right. I mean, it's only what like any sensible person who believes in democracy would say and what we've been saying for six months. But thank goodness the Commonwealth Court just said this. So uh, does that mean that this is over? We do not know. Okay. Because okay. they may appeal it. And as I sit here right now, technically speaking, they haven't canceled the impeachment trial that's supposed to be. Even though the courts have ruled. They haven't done it yet. I am, okay. ho- I am hopeful that the uh, Senate will see the wisdom of actually respecting the courts. I'm hopeful. But then again, I've been watching the United States House of Representatives right. where we're on vote number what, and last time I checked, they still hadn't elected a Speaker of the House. Yep. I heard somebody refer to what's happening in the United States House last night as a goat rodeo, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> and we got, we got another goat Unless rodeo. Unless sleeping goats. Yeah, they're anyway. not sleeping. We got another <laughs> goat rodeo happening in the Pennsylvania House. So we're watching our democratic institutions struggle right now. Yeah. Look, I'm very hopeful that, you know, they'll all understand that this was illegal from jump, that they shouldn't have done it from jump, that it was a cheap political tactic that hasn't worked. But I'm also perfectly willing to continue this fight because democracy is worth it, because criminal justice reform is 
worth it. And we, the people's votes are worth it. You and the, I think Philadelphia votes should count. The, absolutely. Guess the who, people guess who voted you into office a second time. Yeah. So. I started out with ideas, and then we actually did some things, and they kind of liked what we did. Yeah. That's kind of how democracy is supposed to work, but I guess not for some people from Beaver County. Well, so do you think, like, all of this push on you is because you're pulling back the curtain, yep. you're shining the light, yep. like you're exposing, first of all, the racial injustice, you're like exposing the system. I think uh, we are saying things that a lot of communities have known their whole lives. And, and nobody said. Multiple generations. I think it's obviously true. Um, and yeah, they have a lot to hide. You know, mm -hmm. some of the some of these counties upstate, these Trump counties, are making a lot of money off of incarcerating Philadelphians. Yeah, they have every financial reason. They have reasons of power to want a system that locks up too many people for too long to continue. And they don't really care that much about whether we solve crimes in Philly. I care about that. I've been about the loudest voice in Philly for forensic science and being able to really mm -hmm. solve some of these cases because, as you know, so few shootings are actually solved and so few homicides by gun are actually solved. I've been a champion of that because I actually want to catch the people who do the bad stuff. And I want to make sure people who go to jail are guilty when they go to jail. I don't need innocent people in jail. Right. Is that their concern? No. Their concern clearly has been things like their own tax base in their own county, which depends on the state prison, which depends on bringing a whole bunch of inmates in from mm -hmm. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and a couple of other places. That's the reality. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty ugly when you get close to it. But, you know, I am happy if nothing else to be part of people coming to understand what's going on. And then it's up to the people to change it. Absolutely. And, and I need the people to realize, and I've said this for many years in your defense when you're not around, like you run the prosecutor's office, right? So when we talk about prosecution, that happens after a crime occurs. Right. And that is your job. And the one thing that I've also said is that people don't realize, like the only reason that I came into the office was because you were very interested in prevention, yeah. right? But our communities have to take responsibility for themselves in a sense. Like we have to be our own eyes and ears in the community. We have to work with law enforcement. We have to work with the district attorneys because the one thing that we realize, like if they shoot once and they don't get arrested, mm -hmm. they're likely to shoot again. Right. And you know, it community does have to work with law enforcement, but law enforcement also has to deserve it. Law, yes. law enforcement That's true. has to care about what the truth is. They got to care about keeping innocent people out of jail. They got to care about solving these cases and treating victims and survivors with respect and not walking around being racist and not walking around using their power in improper ways. I know a ton of good cops in Philly, a ton. Yeah. I only wish they were running the FOP. Right. They're not. As you know, the people running the Fraternal Order of Police in Philadelphia have very little in common mm -hmm. with most enlightened, current, hardworking, decent police officers in Philly. I mean, this is a bunch of, call it what it is, racist throwbacks who basically answer to a retired yep. group, group of uh, police who outnumber the police who are actually current and are active now. And we all know what that demographic looks like. Absolutely. And we, we all know I've seen that demographic. I mean, we all know what their politics are, too. Absolutely. So... Um, you know, there's a lot of progress that can be made. There really is. And I enjoy working with 
a lot of police in Philly every day, but there's a culture that needs to be broken in half. And until it's broken in half, we're just not going to be as safe. Our society is not going to be as just. Communities are going to be hesitant to interact with police when they know that you can go from being an eyewitness to something to all of a sudden being accused of it when you didn't do it. Yeah. I mean, that's just reality. So, so yeah, the community has to step up, but law enforcement has to do better, improve, step up, and earn that trust too. And that's part of what we try to do with our investigations of innocent people who are sitting in jail with our being uh, correct about whether procedures were followed and whether police officers are telling the truth and doing the right thing. Thank you for your work, Larry. So Thank you for your work, Movita. We haven't talked about you. You've been doing amazing work for a long time. Yeah. Well, this, this interview isn't about me. So <laughs> I just keep getting up every day. You know, that's the thing. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And if I can inspire somebody else to keep getting up. Well, you know, I hope at some point you'll get the chance to talk about your experience as a survivor. And that arc, that evolution that you went through yeah. uh, after you suffered murder in your family, all the different grief you addressed in different ways, some of them more constructive than others, but all of it got you to a better place and a really interesting place. And when you told me that story, that was part of the reason I wanted you to be in the office, because I thought you had a very, very nuanced, deep understanding of, of that. I think you did a great job when you were in the office. Thank you. So, and here's the thing, I hadn't had a boss for 20 years, like I was my own boss, and you were the only boss I had, and I really enjoyed working for you, because you just let me do my thing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the boss. The just, boss did the right thing. He just let me do my thing, right? <laughs> well, it's easy to be the boss when you're not the boss. So it works out that way. But, but that shows a true leader to be either, able either to... Either that or I was scared of you, Movita. <laughs> I don't think you were scared of me, Larry. <laughs> no, I wasn't really scared. But listen, I knew, I knew that you knew exactly what you were doing and where you were going and that you had vision and you had experience and you had a, 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 an extremely impressive ability to connect with people and communicate with people. Why am I going to get in the way of that? Yeah. I had to get in the way of the fools in the office. I didn't have to get in your way. <laughs> I really enjoyed working in the district attorney's office. Um, but we want to thank you for coming to the premiere. Um, the premiere what? The premiere recording of Motivation with Movita. And I'm really happy to have you here. It's good to see you. And I just got three questions I want to ask you. Uh -oh. Okay. These are, so these are going to be the questions that we ask everybody at the end of the podcast, just like to lighten things up, because we're going to have some serious conversations on this podcast. Trust me. So <laughs> three questions. First question, what's your favorite comfort food? Mac and cheese, and if I get a raise, mac and cheese with lobster. Oh, yum. I'm peach cobbler. Anyway, uh, <laughs> what's your favorite inspirational movie? Oh, man, this is a tough one. Yeah. It's my favorite inspirational movie. I'm going to have to work on that one. Let's go okay. to the next question. All right. Next question is, what's your hype song? Like a song that you hear and I, you have to move. And I'm sorry I don't have a song. I should have asked you in advance. We could have played the song and danced, like, at the end of the podcast. Favorite hype but, song, <laughs> Roller Coaster, or Superstition by Stevie Wonder. Superstition! I mean, how can you beat that? You can't. Yeah. And it's not that I'm superstitious. I just love that music. Yeah. My favorite inspirational movie? Yeah. The upcoming documentary on Movita Johnson Harrell. <laughs> what could be more inspiring than that?
<laughs> I haven't seen it. You haven't even seen but it, I know, yet. I know it's going to be awesome. But that is such a great answer. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> On this show, it's the best answer. <laughs> That's a great answer. Thank you so much for joining us. It's so good to see you. Larry Krasner is my friend, and I will continue to support him. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for the first edition of Motivation with Movita. Listen, be the change that you want to see in the world. You want to change something? Do it yourself. Nobody's going to do it for you. You're either going to be a part of the problem, or you'll be a part of the solution.